Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see some familiar faces again. Welcome back um, to another week here at French Vision Church in El Paso, Texas. For those of you that are watching and listening, thank you for checking us out on YouTube and on Facebook. If you have any comments, questions, uh, feel f- please feel free to send those on those respective websites, on those platforms, YouTube, of course, in the bottom of the of the YouTube video, video and on Facebook. Well, I think you know where to put those comments, but make sure they're, they're nice. Um, yeah, if you need any other information about our church, our website is fvcelp.org, and there you will find um, pretty much all the information you need about our church, our COVID guidelines. If the Lord has put it in your heart to, to give um, to our church, there is a PayPal link there where you can do that. Um, and also our address, phone number, email is there on the website if you want to get a hold of us that way. Also, if you have any prayer requests, and this is where I want to I want to stress on that, that please feel free to send those. Um, right now, I think that um, right on our homepage in the bottom section, you'll find an area where you can send us your praise reports uh, or your prayer requests. Right now, it seems like I'm getting a lot of telemarketers using that to send me spam or send me some junk mail. But um, but that's for all you out there that need any prayer requests. So, um, Please do that, and once I receive it, um, yeah, I'll answer as soon as possible. I'll be praying. If you don't want me to answer, just you just have a prayer request, just um, send it, and I'll definitely be praying about that. This morning, we're going to be continuing on uh, where we left off. We're going to continue on our study in Luke chapter 22. Um, and I titled today's message, An Unforgettable Kiss and Stare. Now, this, the title reminds me, and I hope that it reminds you too of some kind of unforgettable kiss or stare in that maybe happened in your life. I know that for me, one of the most unforgettable kisses was the first time I kissed my wife, Robin. Um, she was, I was 17 and she was 15, and we were in front of her friend's home and looking back now and thinking about it, we were both just really nervous. Uh, we weren't sure. I knew I had to kind of initiate that kiss because we were kind of just old school like that. Um, but uh, but it was just, it, it definitely was an unforgettable kiss. Um, it's a kiss that we'll always remember for the rest of our lives, even to my dying day. And when it comes to the stairs, there are certain stairs that she gives me throughout the day that I will always remember. It will always be in my, in my memory. Um, so I just wanted to share these, these moments, these thoughts, in hopes that maybe again, you have a memory or a thought or um, of maybe something similar having, happening in your life. These moments, of course, are really unforgettable. But today, we're going to be reading about another different kind of unforgettable moment. The unforgettable moments of two men. The first one will be, will be about an unforgettable kiss Judas gave Jesus when he betrayed him. 
and the other will be about an unforgettable stare that Jesus gave to Peter after he had denied him three times. So before we get into today's um, passage, let's ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Lord God, again, we come before you on another wonderful Sunday, another great, beautiful Sunday, Lord. Um, truly was a great time of worship, and, and I pray that you heard it and that you received it with a glad heart. So now as we continue our time of, uh, this time of now worshiping through your word, we pray that all those, we continue to, to, to seek you, to, to worship you with our minds, our hearts, all our souls, all our strength, Lord. Um, continue just to, to minister to us, Lord, and we find truths in your word that maybe we've never have seen before. Pray for those watching and listening that you will bless them as well as this message goes out there. And that you will use it to, to speak to their lives and whatever's going on with them right now. Bless this time. Go to this room through the Holy Spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright. So, so far, in Luke chapter 22, we've covered the plot to kill Jesus, the preparation for the Passover, and then the Lord's first, or others call it Last Supper. Then after the supper, there was some disputes about who would be the greatest, and... Um, well, before that, there was also a dispute as to who would betray Jesus. Um, then we also looked at how Jesus predicted Peter's denial. And also he gave him a teaching about how to be ready for trouble. Then we ended last week with Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where we left off, that's where we, and then we'll be picking up the events that happened immediately afterwards. So, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And we'll be in verse 47. Luke chapter 22, verse 47. And the word of God says, while he was still speaking, suddenly a mob came. And one of the twelve named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going on, they asked, Lord, shall we strike them with the sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. But Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, temple police, and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day I was with you, while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me. On me. But this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. No treachery is worse 
than the betrayal of a family member or a friend. Julius Caesar knew this treachery well. Among the conspirators who assassinated the Roman leader on March 15, 44 AD, was Marcus Junius Brutus. Caesar not only trusted Brutus, he had favored him as a son. According to Roman historians, Caesar first resisted the onslaught of the assassins. But when he saw Brutus among them with his dagger drawn, Caesar ceased to struggle. And pulling the top part of his robe over his face, he asked the famous question, you too, Brutus? Now, although our story here is in a completely entire or different scenario, I think most of us would agree that the human side of our Lord must have felt something similar to what Caesar felt about Brutus. Though Judas and Peter here didn't realize it until it was too late about what was, you know, about what Jesus was thinking, what he was feeling. Puritan author George Swinnick wrote, a stroke from guilt, from wrath, broke Judas's heart into despair. A look from love, a look from love from Christ broke Peter into tears. Well, in these opening paragraphs we just read, we're told how two of Jesus' closest disciples yielded to the plan that they were destined for. One by way of betrayal, and the other by way of denial. So let's examine each one a little more carefully before, let's examine the first one more carefully before we move on to the second one, before we move on to Peter. Luke tells us in verse 40, 47 that while Jesus was still speaking, suddenly a mob came. Now this mob would have been a group of the chief priests, elders, temple police, and according to John 18.3, there was also a company of Roman soldiers among them. Now what makes this significant is that it shows that both Jews and Gentiles were complicit in the arrest of God's Son for no justifiable reasons. I often hear out there by some groups that it was the Jews that arrested and killed Jesus, and I've heard from other groups that it was the Gentiles, who, the Romans, who killed and crucified, who uh, arrested and crucified Jesus. Well, here we clearly, clearly see that both were involved. It wasn't one group, just one group or the other. The presence of an actual company of soldier, soldiers also reveals their assumption that Jesus would attempt to flee or hide. Or worst case, that he and the disciples would try to put up a fight to prevent the arrest from happening. But this only goes to show how little, really, any of them knew Jesus. In various occasions throughout his ministry, he never cowered in fear, either from men or from demons. 
When he was opposed, he bravely stood his ground. And even in, we've seen in some instances in this gospel, when other groups wanted to come after him and attack him and kill him, he courageously just walked right past them as if nothing. Now, what made this situation unique was that it was a familiar face that was leading them. And then with no remorse or hesitation, Judas came near to Jesus to kiss him. Someone once defined a kiss as a, contract, as a contraction of the mouth due to the enlargement of the heart. But not all kisses are born out of the loving heart. For you see, some kisses can also be deceitful. In the case of Judas, his kiss, his kiss, his kiss was a basis, basest kind of hypocrisy and treachery. You see, in those days, and even today in some in some cultures, it was customary for people, especially at this time during the, for disciples to greet their teachers with a loving and respectful kiss. Therefore, when they saw Judas doing this, initially they wouldn't have this wouldn't have been this greeting wouldn't have been seen as unusual, since they had probably seen Judas kiss his Lord many times before. So as innocent as it may have seemed, none of them, and perhaps not even Judas, realized at that moment how sinful a kiss could actually be. J.C. Ryle writes, we are too apt to forget that temptation to sin is rarely present. It presents itself in its true colors saying, I am your deadly enemy, and I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh no, sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss, like Joab with an outstretched hand and flattering words. The forbidden fruit seemed good and desirable to Eve, yet it cast her out of even, even walking, walking idly on his palace roof seemed harmless enough for David, yet it ended with adultery and murder. Sin rarely seems like sin at its first beginnings. Let us watch and pray lest we fall into temptation. Now Luke doesn't mention it here, but Matthew chapter 26 verses 40 and 49 says that Judas used the kiss as a sign to tell the arresting officers who Jesus was. So he actually did kiss him. Now, we're not necessarily, we're not told why this was necessary, since most, most of those in the mob had seen Jesus teach in the temple pretty much every day since, he's, since his arrival there in Jerusalem. But nevertheless, his kiss left no doubt in anyone's mind that the person they were after was right there in their midst. Well, once that infamous kiss was given, our Lord pointed out the irony and the duplicity 
of it by asking, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? You see, up to this point, Judas thought that his lies, his deception, would go unnoticed and that no one would check him. He probably thought to himself, a kiss doesn't prove anything. I'll be able to get away with this scot-free. But what he had forgotten was that just as he had done in many other occasions before, the Lord could see right into his guilty conscience. So when Jesus called him out on his treachery in front of everyone, he suddenly realized his lies and his disloyalty had been exposed. And at that moment, just like the story I told you about my wife, it was at that moment that that kiss became an unforgettable kiss. I think that we could all agree that Judas's betrayal was an appalling sin. I think most of us would also agree that he absolutely bears full responsibility for it. Yet God in his providence used it as the best way to deliver Jesus into the hands of his adversaries. You see, if they had captured Jesus in a fight, or if Jesus had run and, and or had hidden until they fought or until they found and caught him, it would show that he was an unwilling victim. If Jesus had surrendered himself, his murderers might have been excused for his death or his death might have been seen as a suicide. If it, had, if it had happened accidentally, it would have diminished the full effect of the bitter cup Jesus was about to drink. No, Spurgeon said, he must be betrayed by his friend that he may bear the utmost depths of suffering and that every circumstance there may be a well of grief. Thus, as horrible as it was, God's perfect plan was, was for his son to be betrayed with a kiss from a friend. It then appears in verse 49 that Jesus' comment to Judas may have caused the disciples to suddenly realize what was going to happen. Then, remembering what he had said about the two weapons, the two swords that they had, which we covered last week, they asked him, is now the time, that, and they asked him if now was the time to strike with the sword. But before he could answer, John 18, 10 said, John 18, verse 10, says that Peter took a sword and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Now why? Did Peter do this? Why did he take that weapon and slash that servant's ear off? Well, all you have to do is look into look back to verse 33 to see that he once again relied on his feelings to back up his words. But the problem with Peter was that 
he had been sleeping when he should have been praying, talking when he should have been listening, and boasting when he should have been fearing. Now, he was fighting when he should have been surrendering. Now, what can we learn from this? Well, let me just share just a couple lessons. See, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6, and Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, our enemies aren't flesh and blood. They cannot be defeated with just ordinary weapons, with a, a sword or a rifle or a gun. If you remember in his wilderness temptations, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11 says that Jesus defeated Satan with the word of God. And that, and that is the weapon, that is a primary weapon we must use. Listen to the words found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. So therefore, let me tell you this, if you're confronted by hostile person, or if you're in a, if you find yourself in a hostile situation, now, again, I recommend that you don't purposely put yourself there, but sometimes we find ourselves in certain situations that, like, how did I get into this jam? But, if you find yourself in one of those situations, keep in mind, keep, keep that in mind, Know who your enemy is. Know what you're dealing with. And know the tools God is giving you. Not to attack and fight, but to defend yourself. If you're facing a spiritual battle, having physical weapons is pointless. The best tools for a spiritual battle, battle are found in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 17, and I'll read that for you. For this reason, take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist the evil day. And having prepared everything, take your stand. Stand therefore with stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up, let me repeat that, in every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And here I also want to emphasize verse 18 pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for the saints so again understand what kind of fight you're getting into is it a physical fight or is it a 
spiritual claim. Peter's other mistake was that he had the wrong attitude and trusted the wrong energy. You see the difference there? The first one again was that Peter was fighting the wrong enemy with the wrong weapon. His other mistake was that he was that he had the wrong attitude and trusted the wrong energy. While Jesus was surrendering, Peter was busy declaring war. And he was depending on the arm of the flesh. His whole approach to the situation wasn't Christ-like at all. So the lesson here is that we must rely on God's spirit and not our flesh when our emotions compel us to fight back against anyone who is or may attack us for simply standing with Jesus. Standing with him and his gospel. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 verse 6, Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. This also serves as a good warning for us too. As servants of God, we mustn't be imitators of the world, but rather imitators of Christ. In the New Living Translation, Romans 12.2 tells us, Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you which is good and pleasing and perfect. Well, moving on to the following verse. Jesus put an end to this carnal display of spiritual warfare with a forceful rebuke. No more of this. I should get louder now. No more of this. <laughs> that's, that's how, you know, he was pretty forceful about it. His hour had come, and God's predetermined purposes needed to be fulfilled, which at that moment wasn't about judgment or about revolution, but about healing and saving. And that's exactly what he did next. Dr. Luke, you have to remember again that this gospel was written by a doctor. He tells us at the end of verse 51 that the Savior touched the slave's ear and healed him. What I think what makes this utterly, this healing utterly amazing is that while others were acting in malice, the Savior acted in grace. Here's how. He showed grace to Peter by rebuking his presumptuous sin and repairing the damage that he had done. He also showed grace to a lowly slave by restoring and healing his ear. But more importantly, he showed grace to the entire world by willingly yielding himself to the mob and going to Calvary. Well, you then see in verses 52 and 53 that 
Jesus then turned to the mob who had come for him and asked why they had approached him with weapons as if he were a violent criminal. He reminds them that every day while he was with them in the temple, ministering to the sick and hurting people, he never laid a hand on him. At any moment during that time, they could have arrested him. But instead, they waited until the cover of darkness to get him. But none of them had an answer. Because Jesus, well, none of them had an answer, though, because Jesus already knew what the answer was. This is your hour and the dominion of darkness. In other words, this was now the time God had given to them, God had given them to do to Jesus what they and Satan wanted to do all along, to arrest and kill him. Our Lord understood this was part of the Father's plan, and yet he continued to trust it by not fighting it. So, as verse 54 says, they seized him, led him away, and brought him into the house, into the high priest's house. Well, it was now around midnight on Thursday, going on to, into Friday. And according to Mark chapter 14, verse 50, the disciples all deserted him and ran away. In the next section that we're going to read about, we're going to see how one of the disciples fell and how he continued to fall from, well, how he continued to fall from his high horse until he was flat on his face. So let's go back to chapter 22 and, and read that next section, beginning in verse... 54. Luke chapter 22, verse 54. They seized him, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, and Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Man, I am not. Peter said, about an hour later, another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, when he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord himself turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. 
one quick observation observation of this passage shows us that when a person denies knowing someone they really love, who they truly love, their heart will be consumed with bitter sorrow and guilt. Now, I've done a lot of dumb things in my life. Just maybe like, probably a little more than many of you, but I've done a lot of dumb things. And I think one of the things that has always stuck in my heart the most and, and has hurt me the most is the moments, the times that I've denied knowing the people that I love the most. Again, looking back now, it's just, even thinking about it, it's hard to do because I really care for them. I really love them. But again, it, it sticks with a person. But for the believer, this is what I've discovered. Where there's affliction, there will also be conviction. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it tells us that godly sorrow produces repentance. C.H. Spurgeon said that the furnace of affliction is a good place for you. Christian, it benefits you. It helps you to become like Christ. And it's fitting you for heaven. In Peter's case, though, he had to be humble first in order to even begin to understand what it truly means to be afflicted. So that's what we see here. The end of Peter's downward spiral that began when he started making these all these boasts and that ultimately ended when he fell prey to Satan's temptation by denying his Lord. Well, as the events of that night moved on, verse 54 tells us that Jesus immediately was taken into the high priest's house, who John 18 tells us was Annas. What should have been a place that kept the religious leaders um, of Judaism like holy and, and pure now became the scene of the most evil deed in history. The mockery of a trial that convicted the Son of God. Now the Gospels record that our Lord endured six different trials before he was condemned to be crucified. Three before the Jews and three before the Roman authorities. So again, further proof that Gentiles and Jews were involved fully in, his, in, in what happened to him in his death. First, as Luke brief, briefly tells us here, he was taken to the high priest. John 18 further details that Annas was, was then the former, uh, was a former high priest and was an influential man in the nation. And by this point, he had retained his former title. So he was a former priest, but became so popular that they brought him back into that position. 
Matthew chapter 26, verse 57 tells us that Anna sent Jesus to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who was the official high priest. Finally, at daybreak, he was tried before the Sanhedrin and found guilty, which Luke will focus on later in this chapter. But since Jews didn't have the legal right to execute anyone, they had to send them to the Roman authorities so they can hold their own trial and have them do it. These trials were before Pilate, who then passed the decision on to Herod, who then returned the decision back into Pilate, who eventually gave in to what the Sanhedrin wanted by condemning Jesus to death by crucifixion. So as all this was going on, as he was being sent to Annas' house, just like verse 39 says, a disciple was following him. But unlike before, this time verse 54 says that Peter was following at a distance. Now, perhaps he did this out of fear of being arrested or killed because of what he had just done to the priest's servant. But regardless of the reasons, Peter was now following Jesus with curiosity to see what would happen, not with devotion to identify himself with the master. Once he arrived inside the high priest's compound, is the property there, he continued to distance himself from Jesus by joining a crowd who had lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard. And there, away from the disciples, away from the people that might have known, might have known him or knew him, he kept himself warm. He got comfortable. And he began to quietly shift identities. That's what happens again when Christians start going into the world, going back and walking into the world. They start forming themselves to certain activities that are going on and they start to really start having these conversations that they shouldn't be having and be comfortable. And over time, we start to shift their identities. No longer a follower of Jesus, he became one of the crowd, curious to see what was about to happen and eager for a good time around the fire. But here's the thing. As a Galilean fisherman, he had a rugged disposition that made him stand out to city folk. Would be as someone from the south, someone that's from the country, try to fit in with the New Yorkers or those out in in the Boston area, again, you'd be able to tell by just the way they look, the way they talk. This here was going on with Peter. This and the fact that many knew him as the disciple would have made his identical his identity difficult to conceal. And here's 
What this shows us is that no matter how hard you try, someone, somewhere, at some time, will recognize you, will identify you as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. Even if you're following him at a distance, there will come a time when you will be called out. I... If you listen closely to people's conversations, you will start to hear certain things that a non-believer wouldn't say. That only you, maybe as a Christian, can pick up on. Like, he, he knows something. He knows something about the faith. So again, it, it, it's hard to hide. When you know the truth, you know the truth. You can't hide from it. Again, it might be by the way you speak, the way you conduct yourself, or maybe at a time when they saw you at church. But when you are recognized, what will be your answer? How will you answer? How will you respond back? Will you say that you do know him or that you don't? Well, sure enough here, we see that it didn't take long for people to start recognizing Peter. First, it was a serving girl who saw him sitting in the light of the fire. When she took a closer look at Peter, she remembered him and exclaimed that he was with Jesus too. Without thinking, Peter went into a defensive mode. No way, not me. Woman, I don't know him. For the first time since meeting him, Peter had denied Jesus. But what he had done hadn't hit him yet. He probably just felt relieved that she was now going to leave him alone and he was, able, he was going to be able now to go back to that warm fire and his conversations and enjoy his time in that place. But that wasn't the end of it. Shortly afterwards, someone else pointed the accusing finger at Peter and said, you're one of them too. Again, he denied it. No, man, I'm not. An hour later, another man kept insisting that Peter was certainly with him and even used his Galilean attributes to prove this claim. But the more the man insisted, the harder it became for Peter to maintain his composure until he couldn't take it no more, until he finally snapped. Instead of ignoring the man, Peter responded with the most vehement denial. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Matthew chapter 26, verse 74 says that his denial was so vehement that Peter even began to curse and swear to further distance himself from any, any more accusation. He was dropping F-bombs in, in, in that original language that he was speaking in, speaking in, and he was just going off. Every single curse word that you could probably think of to prove that he wasn't with Jesus. But as distressing as this scene one was things were going to get 
more intense in the next few verses. Luke tells us that immediately, while he was still speaking, he heard the sound of a rooster crow. What's remarkable here is that it was an animal sound, not the voice of a human, that made Peter realize what he had done. And in that instant, before his next thought came to mind, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. He looked straight at Peter. With one unforgettable stare from Jesus, a fuse was ignited in Peter's mind. But the devastating explosion occurred when he remembered the words Peter, the words Jesus had told him just a few hours ago. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Peter was immediately convicted of sin. Not only of his denial of Jesus, but also the pride that led him to think that he could never deny him. While well, the brashly self-confident man had been knocked off his high horse and was no longer in the mood for warm conversations around the fire. He walked away from the crowd and kept walking, and kept walking, and just kept walking until he was outside the priest's property, as far away from every single human being and when he was finally alone in the darkness of the night, he wept bitterly. And I imagine every moment in tear growing more intense as his own words kept playing over and over again in his mind like a broken record. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Broken with grief and sorrow, the affliction he was now experienced must have been overwhelming and unbearable. And yet, even as Peter found himself drowning in a sea of tears, he wasn't without hope. As much as Jesus, Jesus promised that Peter would deny him was true. We mustn't forget that he was also given a message of restoration. Hope was the only thing that kept them from going in the same disastrous direction Judas went in. If you know the story very well, once Judas realized what he had done, he took his own life. He took the money that he was given, threw it back at those priests, found a tree, and hung himself. And I think that, again, the reason this gets me so much is that it's hard to it's hard to think and imagine 
the pain, the heartache that Peter was going through, what Peter was feeling, knowing that the person he loved, without his heart, he had denied him. And again, I, I, I understand. I've done, I've done that before, and it sucks. It's, it's, <coughs> it's do it to Jesus, the person that he had walked with, he had talked with, he had laughed with. He, Jesus washed his feet and Judas's feet. He had seen Jesus do all kinds of miracles, and now he denying that he knew him. Again, I can just feel the pain that he must have felt. Maybe just a, a piece of it that I, I, I know, I understand. Well, again, even through all that, he had hope. Christian brothers and sisters, you need to hold on to this hope as well. Even when you've fallen into a hole so deep that there doesn't seem to be a way out. See, each one of us at one time or another will fall, will fail the Lord. And then here, at one way or another, the rooster crow. Satan will tell you that you're finished and that your future has been destroyed. But that's not God's message for you. His message for you is that when you've blown it, when you find yourself there in that hole, call out to Him. And He will come and rescue you. It says in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 and 12, For this is what the Lord God says, See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is, uh, as a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flocks, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and total darkness. And there's so many other verses there, examples of, of illustrations that Jesus gives, gives us that he does come after his, his, his own. He does rescue those he loves. Previously went through one, it was, you know, he leaves the 99 to go after the one. And I was listening at home to that song, Reckless Love. I would, if you haven't heard it, I would recommend it. But really listen to it. It's a beautiful, amazing song. But yes, if you call out to him, he will come and rescue you. Never forget that. So wherever, whenever you hear the rooster crow, find comfort and assurance in these three things. God is still in control. Forgiveness and restoration will always be available to you. And number three, a new day is dawning. 
I used to go when my grandmother was alive and I was little, I would go to her house in Tijuana and she would have a, some chickens and roosters in the back. And me and my little brother, we would, when we were small, we would just sit there waiting for them to either lay eggs or to, to, uh, to crow in the middle of the roosters or crow in the middle of the day. We didn't realize at the time that we, we know that they only do it in the middle of well, in the morning. And well, when a rooster crows, it means that a new day is coming. Mark chapter 16, verse 17 tells us that on resurrection morning, the angel sent a special passage message to encourage Peter. And in Luke chapter 24, the Lord himself appeared to Peter that day and restored him to fellowship. So again, remember that when the rooster crows, a new day is dawning. As difficult as this scene is to read, and it's, it, has, it is difficult to read, it was difficult to study, and it was difficult to share. It serves not only to reassure us of the veracity and accuracy of the narrative as a whole, it also serves to teach that restoration, even after the most egregious failures, is possible. So if that's what you're looking for, if you're at a place where you need to be restored, where you feel like, I've fallen so far that, man, it hurts, I'm grieving. And you're wondering if Jesus will forgive you. Well, let me tell you, he will. He will forgive you. Just come to him. The Lord, that restoration is being offered to you freely. And all you have to do is receive it. can be so easy again for Satan to lie to lie to us and to lie to you and tell you I'm not you blown you've messed up. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe Satan. Again, he's only out there to destroy you and to, to kill you and and to mess up your relationship with God. So if you need that restoration He's offering it. You just have to take it. Come to the cross again. Rededicate your life. And just resume walking with the Lord. I covered that ex extensively last week. But get up, turn around, come back to me. That's what he wants you to do. But for those of you who don't know the Lord and want to be forgiven, and you understand, you see what the Lord is doing here and, and you understand now that he died for you went to the cross, he was beaten for you and we'll cover that more next week and hopefully you'll be able to join us as we do that if you open up the door of your heart God can come in and make his dwelling inside of you and if that's what you'd like, like to do this morning I want to lead you in a prayer to do that, to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to make him the Lord of your life. So if that's what you'd like to do, if you're watching and listening, I just want you to close your eyes and 
bow your head and, and pray this with all sincerity. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I admit that I've sinned and completely blown it. I now ask for your forgiveness. I now believe that you died for my sins and on the third day you rose from the dead. So now I repent. I turn from my sins and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. Now I ask that you fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he may help guide me in my newborn again life. In your name. Amen. Notice the Lord knows that he that you prayed that with all sincerity. And if you if you did, you've been born again. The Lord you're now part of the family and he will bring you in. He has adopted you and you're now part of the family. When the time comes, and hopefully it will be soon, we'll be with him in heaven with him. And for all eternity. Get a hold of us. Let us know that you prayed that and we'll lead you into your next steps. Well, I hope that you'll join us next week as we finish off chapter 22. So, enjoy this upcoming week. Farewell and blessings.